0: Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through Bandcamp.com That's Catalyst is and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mm-hmm. Ben DeVries, in his new book, The Patient Equation, says that despite the digital revolution and the way we can capture and analyze data, not much has changed for decades in how clinical trials are conducted. We spoke to DeVries, co-founder and co-CEO of the clinical trials data platform Metadata, about how clinical trials need to evolve, how technology can be used to improve patient access, and how it can capture new types of data to better answer questions about the safety and efficacy of therapies. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Thanks
1: for having me, Danny. Delighted to be here.
0: First, let me congratulate you on the publication of your new book, The Patient Equation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's pretty exciting to see it in print.
0: We're going to talk about clinical trials, your company metadata, and the opportunities to capture data differently and reshape the way clinical trials are conducted. We're we're in this time where virtually everything we do is generating data. There's a a proliferation of new means of capturing data in real time. From a healthcare perspective, what's the opportunity before us to improve health and, and particularly the diagnosis and treatment of disease?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that we've, and in some ways COVID-19 has put a, a little magnifying glass on top of this, but we've, we've practiced medicine pretty much since its inception by looking at data in very short little staccato timeframes. So you, you go to your doctor and you have your blood drawn on that particular day at that particular time. Um, you tell somebody how you were feeling that particular day at that particular time, or or at least try to recall how you were feeling for a period of time, but certainly wasn't something that was proactively measured. We, we, we get our genes sequenced and we find out what, what actually happened at the moment of conception in terms of setting up our genetic future. Um, yes, yes. in some diseases, obviously cancers, um, is a perfect example your genes do mutate in individual cells, but we're, we're pretty much dealing with the same genes that we had, however old you are, 48, 48 years ago, I've, I've got today. So that is the context of thinking about what ails me, um, what is the right treatment for me, and it's these little moments in time, and I think your point about data is very well put, it's just kind of streaming around us everywhere, and whether it's the technology that's in our pocket or on our wrist or um, maybe things that are biologically more feasible to do, not just from a, a you know iPhone uh, perspective, but can we start to monitor with medical grade sensors over time or even just expand the dialogue with our doctors. So those conversations can happen anytime. I think the big difference is that we're gonna start to see these continuums where we can actually see rate of change, not just these single moments as part of how we think about diagnosing disease, managing disease, making sure people are getting the right treatments. That's a giant paradigm shift um, that uh, that again, we've probably been waiting for literal millennia to have happened, but I think we're about to, to really live through that at the scale. It's pretty exciting.
0: You speak broadly in the book about the potential for data to transform healthcare. I wanted to focus on clinical trials specifically, but before we do that, perhaps you can explain what metadata solutions does and as a way for listeners to understand your visibility into this world.
1: Sure. Yeah. I I actually got um, extremely lucky in in my career. If you go back uh, 25 years ago, I I thought I'd be researching um, one kind of cancer, um, probably looking at maybe even one gene in it for the rest of my life and uh, actually frustrated by the infrastructure that was available to run the research that I was doing. So how I would connect, what we were doing in the laboratory with the records for the patients who were volunteering to be in studies that we were working on, um, how we took that and turned it into something that we could publish from an academic perspective. All that was very slow and cumbersome. And so with uh, a few friends, um, again, this is now 25 years ago is when I was doing research, but uh, about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, with those friends, we started what is now MediData. And it really had the, the mission of trying to help us get things from that laboratory stage into the hands of patients who were waiting for them by trying to connect all the people and all that data in a much more um, seamless way, in a way that would allow us to accelerate the biological, the medical revolutions that we were trying to power in terms of something that would really generate patient value and simply put, we started connecting everybody over the internet. And we, we started by connecting the professionals. So people who were working as scientists, physicians, um, statisticians, the people in the life sciences world and, and medical centers, we put all the professionals online. And this was back in the day when the only thing you could buy on amazon.com was a book. So it kind of dates us a little bit, but we're like, if we can buy a book online, why can't we run our clinical trials online? And, and basically that's what we did. Fast forward 20 years and we realized Of course over that course of time that not only could we connect the professionals but we could connect the patients and not only could we connect the patients who were volunteering to be in these research projects but we could actually connect the research projects to to each other as well so everywhere there was a time barrier everywhere there was a systems barrier we realized we could overcome that and create this kind of um, continuum of data across everybody who had the same mission of getting new therapies into the marketplace. And and that really has resulted in, instead of me being in the lab, looking at one gene and one cancer for the rest of my life, um, as I said, getting very lucky. And now I get to look at what's happening in oncology and cardiology and rare diseases and COVID-19, um, because metadata is powering, uh, I think uh, more than half of the research that's going on around the world is happening in that data continuum um, in one way or another. And so I, I not only have kind of my dream job and then I get to work in all these different aspects of healthcare. But we really have a very interesting um, chair, if you will, uh, by which uh, to, we can spectate the life sciences world, academic and industry alike. And so what we see are people starting to take advantage of not just this continuum of connectivity um, that I was just talking about, but of uh, what we first started talking about is kind of looking at a, a patient's journey in a in a much richer way than you might in a typical clinical trial just see them you know on day zero on day 30 on day 60 on day 120 but actually start to to connect these patients to clinical trials through apps through sensors Um, not that we're not going to collect all the traditional medical data as well it's incredibly important and sometimes you know it's the most important like we're trying to cure somebody's cancer we need to measure their tumor volume and we can't do that with a sensor at home right now but we can also look at things like their behavior um, and as a uh, an input to the overall view of their health. And actually, you mentioned my book. That's why it's called The Patient Equation. The equation is how you put all these different inputs in that we're talking about. And actually, the output is figuring out what that best therapy is for any given patient at any given time, like precision medicine. That's, that's, the, that's the product of the equation, if you will.
0: We've seen uh, an amazing... Evolution of technology. One of the things you note though is that by and large, the way clinical trials are conducted today hasn't changed significantly in decades. Why is that?
1: Yeah, so some of it is, is for good reason. I mean, when when you're when you're working on a clinical trial for a vaccine, um literally billions of people are going to be affected by whether or not the conclusions are correct. So you need to do things in a responsible way. Um, scientifically, you need to do things ethically. You need to do things in a way that will pass the regulatory scrutiny of the, the appropriate regulatory scrutiny to make sure that safe and effective products are given to the public. So the conservatism in doing things differently—that um, makes sense. I, I think that there's there's the um, I don't think we did a bad job in the past. There's this, this unfortunate inv- lack of places where we could break down those barriers between people, between silos of data. Um, and it's one of the reasons that it's such an exciting time in life sciences for companies like MediData, um, uh, for organizations like RareX that um, uh, we were talking about before the, the podcast. Like people who are in the business of breaking down those barriers um, are now going to see the ability to really accelerate how the, the innovation is delivered to patients. It's so, that, so again, it's not that we were doing a bad job before. It's just that now we can work different ways because we're connected differently.
0: You talk about the need for clinical trials to change in in a number of ways. I'd like to walk through those. The the first is clinical trials access, the way patients find and participate in clinical trials. How big a problem is that?
1: Yeah, so it's a a big problem, actually. And the the problem of access to clinical trials is a microcosm of the problem of access to medicine, um, full stop. Uh, again, we're, we're living through some unfortunate times where uh, I think we're seeing that so starkly because of what's happening um, in, with COVID-19. Um, but there was just a, a, a publication in Nature Medicine a couple of weeks ago about the travel time to healthcare facilities around the world. And you know, not everybody lives within um, walking distance or as we have the, the luxury in here in New York of being a subway ride away from an academic medical center. We, we deal with the fact that Socioeconomically, geographically, not everybody can get every possible therapy in, in, in an equitable way. And I think those of us who are in life sciences, those of us who work in the healthcare um, continuum, we, we have um, we have an ethical obligation to try to solve that. And and frankly, most of the people who are in that kind of supply chain of healthcare have a commercial motivation to try to solve that. Right? We, we the 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 more we do in terms of helping people, the, the better job we're doing. And so this idea of access really starts to me is thinking about the tools themselves. So can I give a medicine to somebody and not have them in the clinic every time I give it to them? Can I recruit patients, find the patients who will benefit from my therapy, whether it's for a research project or just in life, through, through a more scalable means um. Maybe through uh, the technologies that are around us everywhere than the way I used to do it, which was just hoping that the right patient walks through the door at the right doctor um, to to happen upon this therapeutic opportunity. We 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 need to think differently about the tools for healthcare. And again, that that's that's what clinical trials are all about.
0: The second thing you mentioned, which is somewhat related, is the way that data is measured and collected in the clinical study. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: so again, we we can. And, and should do it in all the traditional means that we used to, we have to, we have to see patients sometimes in the clinic. Um, but if you, uh, if you think about what's happening in healthcare, again, this was, this was a problem before, but I think everybody's realizing it more. If you, if you don't go to the doctor physically and get your checkup, you might miss a diagnosis for a chronic disease or a life-threatening condition. If you have a chronic condition, and you're not actively managing it, you may not be getting the optimal outcomes. You may not be getting the highest quality of life, the, the best possible health. If you have a, a life-threatening condition and you're not taking the right medicine or you're somebody who was immunocompromised who was getting a cancer therapy and didn't want to or couldn't, shouldn't have gone to a, a medical center to get their, their chemotherapy um, treatment, as an example, obviously um, you're moving in the wrong direction. You want to be moving towards cure, not getting sicker. And so. I think if we if we think about the, the clinical trials, um, we can start to think about fixing that problem again by making sure that we're not dependent on the doctor and the patient being in the same room at the same time for every piece of the frankly scientific exercise, which is going to prove out that the way that we use these therapies um, in the broader practices around the world is actually going to work for people. Um, so again, that's something we think about very differently in the world of clinical trials today as we virtually connect people, et cetera.
0: I imagine there's a fair bit of inertia within in the industry. There's a, a lot at stake, and it requires a big investment in time and money to validate new endpoints and convince regulators. How willing are companies to do this? So th- there certainly is a lot
1: uh, um, at stake, and there's um, there's definitely risks. But if you think about the potential rewards, um, both for the the... The companies who are investing in these ideas and for the patients that they ultimately serve, uh, I think the rewards far outweigh the risks. Uh, I'll give you a very practical example. Let's say you have um, uh, multiple clinical trials working on the same cancer, the same rare disease. And in that traditional model, everybody does their own independent scientific experiment. You don't have to be a life scientist to to do this, if you've taken high school chemistry, you know that you have a control group, right? So in clinical trial A, you have the patients who are getting great new drug A, and you have the patients who are in the control group. And in clinical trial B, in the traditional way, you've got patients who are getting great new drug B and the control group. And not only does that mean that we have two control groups, um, but we actually don't really have a great way to know and even figure out for each individual patient, who is going to benefit more from drug A or drug B? Um, Let's, in this example, just be optimistic and assume they both work really well. We still have this kind of um, unproductive environment, double the number of patients required as controls who aren't getting the new stuff and not getting as much evidence about what is really best for every individual because we had two separate experiments. You work in a digital world where you can really bring all that data together bring all the researchers together, create a patient pool that spans both of those individual experiments. I now can have half as many patients exposed to something that was potentially harmful or ineffective, a control that's not gonna benefit the maximally. And I can start to generate new kinds of evidence. I can start to show why maybe, or at least generate some hypotheses why, not just a population, but an individual patient might benefit more from drug A or drug B. So. If you're one of the patients, I think it's obvious. I think if you're one of the drug companies involved in that example, it's obvious too. You're gonna figure out how to best apply your new therapy in a precise way to patients who will benefit from it. Again, ethically, I don't think anybody's gonna argue with that. Commercially, if you're a drug company, that's a great way to make more money. And so it's a very happy environment where people's kind of ethical and economic motivations can be aligned. So that's why I'm optimistic about people really behaving differently today.
0: One of the issues that brings me to is that there is a lot of data that's held captive by companies and hospitals and universities. You you talk about the disconnection between the pharmaceutical industry and clinical care and the need to unsilo data so patients and doctors can be better informed. How much of a mind shift is needed within industry for that?
1: it's a big mind shift. I I don't want to trivialize it by any um, stretch, but I I think you're seeing it happen. Um, And uh, frankly, I think it almost needs to happen. So pharmaceutical companies um, and life scientists in general, even in academia, used to think about patients and big populations, right? What can we do for, for everybody who has high cholesterol? That's a lot of people. And when you start to look at things in oncology, this is certainly um, happening a lot, but you're going to see it in, I think almost every therapeutic area. You should say, well, well, I'm not just looking at um, people who have high cholesterol. I'm looking at people with high cholesterol who have a certain a genetic makeup, or I'm looking at people with this cancer, but only these very specific mutations. Or maybe it's a disease that just has a small patient population to begin with. I'm working in a rare disease that there's only a thousand people around the planet every year who get diagnosed with it. The smaller and smaller populations you have, the mathematically more difficult slash impossible it becomes to do the traditional kind of research to find great care, for, great care options for them. So you have to start thinking differently about combining data that's in a clinical trial with data that came from practice outside of clinical trials and, and figure out how to, and it's possible, create a, a mathematically responsible, scientifically reliable environment to look at, at the, the evidence you're generating from different sources of data outside of again the, that silo of one experiment, so the industry is going to get there by necessity. And I think, um, and frankly, there's a lot more people who uh, certainly I hope metadata included in people's list of that who are making the environments possible to to make that a reality.
0: You also talk about the need to become open to collecting new types of data. What types of things are you thinking about, and how might this change conceptions of safety, efficacy, or, or value?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I was uh, um, l- lucky enough to um, to uh, get to teach a class at Columbia um, with uh, Bill Carson, who um, uh, retired. He was the, the CEO of Takeda, and um, he, he gave me a really good analogy, because if you look at the life sciences industry, and he gave it in this class, um, it, there's an interesting disease, there's an interesting therapeutic area, and... Um, Interesting meaning people see the opportunity to create patient value, right? Maybe there's a cancer, um, there's a a target, a molecule that all of a sudden people have figured out is involved, and now we can go find drugs that target that particular molecule. Well, everybody in the industry stands up, and again, it's not just the, the commercial part of the industry, it's academia too, and tries to kind of run through the doorway of treating people with this new biological target at the same time. And if you imagine everybody trying to run through a doorway at the same time who's in a room, it's a very inefficient way to do it. But if you start to say to people in the room, hey, just order yourselves in height order and then walk out the door, they'll, they'll actually file out the door much more efficiently. And so if we start to think about this data sharing, if we go back to my example, like, well, for, for a particular patient, is drug A or drug B better for them? Or if, um, if there's somebody who was taking the drug one for their cancer and now it's not working anymore, what's the next drug they should take? If we order things, we start to create a lot more patient value. Now, that's a, that's a great idea. How do we do that? Part of that is looking at the, the data in a bigger way as we were talking about. Another part of it is looking for the most subtle ways to figure out what that order should be. How do we put people in height order? Well, it might mean that the more traditional measurements, the the staccato things we were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation, um, don't give us enough resolution to do that. So that's where I think there's this opportunity to bring much more um, continuous and much more fine-grained data into these equations. It might be, um, sequencing a single cell. So it could be biologically something that's very small. It could be looking at our sleep patterns, or it could be our behavioral patterns, how much we're working, at, walking around as another component, not just our tumor volumes as we've traditionally measured them. These are the things that will go into that ordering. These are the things that will go into that increase in, in patient value, I think,
0: I hope. There's generally more of an appetite to do this in rare diseases where therapies may not exist. And Patients and, and patient advocates think differently about quality of life benefits than, say, what traditional endpoints may capture. How much of a challenge is the validation of data and the investment needed to do that?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring, bring up patient advocates. I mean, I, I actually think that, that there's a, a huge role for, for defining what good looks like to a patient in almost every therapeutic area. A lot of rare diseases have benefited. Um, It's kind of strange to say somebody with a rare disease benefits from it, but they are much better off, I'll say, because of the articulation of what is required for a higher quality of life or the need for a cure in the rare diseases by these these patient advocacy groups. And I, I think that as we start to see that amplification of patient voices, As we start to see uh, what I'll I'll say is true patient centricity, regardless of therapeutic area, we really try to to aim for not what looks good from a a clinic perspective only. Usually the clinical endpoints like tumor volume are going to trend with something that is important to the patient, like their ability to um, enjoy their family, go to work, travel, whatever it is. But but starting to measure that patient value, um, which I think more often than not, It isn't something a patient's not usually aware of their tumor volume, unless it's pressing on a nerve and and causing them pain, but they're aware of their fatigue. They're aware of their ability to enjoy their lives or uh, continue to work. And so some of these things that I'm excited about from a, a sensor continuous data measurement perspective are really about our behavior and our cognition, which is a much closer idea, I think, to that kind of personal patient value than some of the, the things that are measured in the clinic. And so that's, again, where the, these voices of patients, our ability to scientifically correlate what good looks like to a patient to a, a quantitative, objective score gets mixed in, in a responsible way with the more traditional view of research and the more traditional view of medicine. And, and it's, a win, it's a win-win for everybody involved.
0: If I've got my numbers right, you've been at this for 22 years now. I'm sure in retrospect, you've witnessed enormous change, but given how quickly technology has evolved, are you frustrated or surprised by how slow the actual transformation of things takes place in the life sciences is?
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, actually, I guess, including my, my time as in the laboratory, it's, really, it's been like a quarter of a century um, that I've been at it, and and there's a lot of stuff I've been involved in, um, and been privileged enough to have people ask me to to work with them on, which I'm I'm super proud of. I mean it, it it's it's great, as I'm sure many people who are listening know, to work in life sciences and healthcare, and, um, but yeah, sometimes it is frustrating. Um, I actually give an example in the patient equation of um, uh, a friend of mine sent me a paper uh, about a pandemic paper. Um, and it was about social distancing and about how little we know about what really um, are the key predictors of who's going to suffer versus who isn't, uh, how long it's going to take for us to figure out what the long-term effects of the pandemic um, are on people's health. And, and it wasn't a paper about COVID-19. It was a paper about Spanish flu that was published in Science Magazine 100 years ago. And, and when I saw that, I was like, wow, we have done all this work on digital infrastructure, we've done all this work on collaboration and data sharing, and we're not dealing with a global pandemic any differently than we did in 1918. Um, so stuff like that does frustrate me, um, but I also think of it, you know I'm, I'm the kind of person I have to find a silver lining sometimes, you know, at least it's a call to action that we need to think about how we would pr- more prospectively share data and think about things so we don't let something like COVID-19 happen to the scale it did um, this time, the next time we're dealing with a global pandemic.
0: You also talk about the move to mathematical designs of clinical trials. You're, you're talking about adaptive clinical trials or so-called Bayesian clinical trials. Can you explain for listeners who are not familiar with those, how they work and the benefits of that approach? Yeah, it. it uh, I, I think the, the
1: easiest way to think about them, um, let, let's start with uh, an experiment with flipping coins. Um, if if we want to figure out the percentage of time that when we flip a coin, it comes up head versus tails, kind of the way clinical trials work is we say, all right, well, let's, let's take a coin and let's flip it a hundred times. Let's not, let's, then let's tally up all those flips and we'll look and see how many times it was heads versus tails. The, the Bayesian approach, which is um, yeah, based on this guy, Thomas Bayes' statistics from hundreds of years ago. Um, he, he said, well, you know, every time you flip a coin and you look at whether it came up heads or tails, You've learned something about the nature of coin flipping and maybe we don't have to flip it a hundred times to know that it's going to be close enough to 50, 50. So now think about a clinical trial, right? Remember what we said before, you've got, you got the patients who are getting the control and the patients who are getting a, a potentially new drug and you wait until you've treated all those patients and then you tally up the score. You don't have to do that. We, we can work in ways where we're learning every time we give, a patient, a new therapy, can we take that and and, and have a responsible mathematically, statistically view of what we expect to happen to the next patient? What patients group themselves with what therapies? Can we, as, as I gave an example before, figure out like, not just does drug A work and does drug B work, but is drug A or drug B better for Glenn? And that is this Bayesian idea of continually learning. It's not easy to do those. It requires a lot of coordination between the people doing research. It requires uh, good data sharing um, and a different approach than what's happened before. But apropos to what we said before, these are new approaches we're going to have to do as patient populations get smaller and smaller. And so I think these, these learning trials, these collaborative trials, um, are, are just going to become the standard by which almost all research is done. Um, and again, I think it's one of these places where basically
0: everybody wins. I, I've, yeah, I think I've been hearing about these trials for 15, 20 years. Regulators have talked about it, they're open to it. Why hasn't it become the standard?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, that's another one of those things where you start talking about frustration. I mean, uh, what, um, uh, Don Berry, who was a great mentor um, to me over the years, has been one of the statisticians and kind of like pounding his fist on the table saying, We need to be doing more adaptive uh, designs. Um, and it feels like every year, and I started banging my head on the table and it feels, you know, oh, this is the year when it's going to happen. This is the year when it's happening. Well, I, I do feel like it is beginning to happen. And I think it wasn't that people thought it was a bad idea. I, I think the problem was really infrastructure. Um, and it was, as I said before, it requires a lot of coordination. It requires um, people to think differently about data, um, how they're going to standardize it within research projects, how they're going to share it, how they're going to create a collaborative environment for the, the physicians and the patients who are all participating in this. And um, it, like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society um, uh, you know, put together a, a study and and. They had to do all that work and there was a lot of cost. Now, again, groups like MediData as an example are creating an environment where it's much easier to create that collaboration. It's much easier to work together. You don't have to worry about the data standardization because it's being done as part of the technologies that are used in a clinical research project. So I again, I don't think anybody thought it was a bad idea, but then the barrier to actually doing it was high. The barrier is getting lower and lower. And I, I feel like Perhaps in my optimism, but I really do feel like the barrier is getting low to the point that we're going to see more people going over that no longer mountain, but that little bump, because either the benefit is so great on the other side, or like I said before, they have to based on the populations they're trying to serve.
0: Earlier in this discussion, you talked about the issue of access. We've seen openness to virtualizing clinical trials in the face of the pandemic, bringing the trial to the patient, as it were, what's the potential to harness technology to, to do that?
1: Yeah. So I, I I think kudos to the people who were um, who were running virtual trials. We certainly did some metadata. We weren't by any stretch the only people doing it. Um, but it was kind of the exception, not the rule, because everything was, everything was done in medicine in a way where we we could, as I think I said, we had we used this assumption that we can get the doctor and the, and the patient in the same room at the same time. And now we see that that's not a great assumption. It's not a great assumption for anything. It's not a great assumption for having a meeting or having a birthday party. We're all starting to do it virtually. And so I think we're gonna, it's almost that same kind of barrier to entry before. Nobody is gonna end the pandemic um, who was going to a doctor, um, who was going to a meeting um, before, nobody's gonna be on the other side of this and feel the same way about connecting through a screen. And I think that's gonna create a much greater level of comfort acceptance with this idea that medicine can be done remotely. And thankfully, there are lots of companies who have already started the work of figuring out how we can ship the drug to the patient in their home, how we can get them to go to the pharmacy across the street from them um, instead of having to travel to an academic medical center hundreds of miles away and miss work, et cetera, to, to participate in a clinical trial. And so the, the barriers now I'm talking about on the patient side um, to having this kind of more virtualized experience of healthcare are going to go down. And, and I really feel like sometimes I use this analogy of tools. There are tools that are used in healthcare, right? Um, a statin is a tool. A surgical procedure is a tool, and you apply these tools as a as a physician or as a nurse practitioner um, to patients who will benefit from them. The life sciences industry's entire job is to make better tools. That's it. Like if if you're if you make tools that are better than the ones in the pocket, the tool belts of of those practitioners, you're a good life sciences company. Well, if we've started to create this environment where those tools can include virtualization can include remote usage more and more. We've not only made presumably better tools, but we've started to solve that access
0: problem. Glenn DeVries, co-CEO of Metadata Solutions and author of The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. Glenn, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. It was great talking to you.